Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci, and today I'm joined with two of my fellow team members at Global Questions, Joshua Kay and Sasha Nilsson. Hello, everyone. Hi. So today we're talking about a topic each that we've found interesting to recap 2020. And I think that you'll find a lot of our topics are quite different, but also very interesting and highlight the different themes of 2020 and how chaotic it's kind of been. A lot has happened. <laughs> yeah. So, Josh, do you want to go ahead and start? What have, what have you been looking into? I mean, Jen, when you gave me this prompt and asked me to have a think about it, it was it was easy to go for like the US election or COVID yeah. because it feels like they've dominated everything. Like all the news has all been about those two. Um, but there's been a lot that's been going on in the background that I think hasn't quite got the attention that it deserves. So I've chosen to focus on something that I saw in my newsfeed probably about a month or so ago, and it's been described as the largest and, in fact, the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And what I'm referring to there is the current war and the impending famine that's occurring in Yemen. So what I saw in this article is that according to the UN, more than half of Yemen's population of 30 million risks slipping into serious levels of hunger by about mid next year. So the country is effectively, it looks like on the verge of a nationwide famine that's shaping up to be the world's worst famine in about 100 years, which is pretty crazy to think. That is crazy. How do we even miss this stuff, like, in the news? I feel like I never hear about this ever. Like, it's always very Western-dominated media, I guess. Yeah, totally. I I think it's a combination of the fact that, as you said, the media is very Western-centric. It's all been about the US election, about what's going on there. I mean, Mm. everyone's time and resources, as I said, have been consumed by COVID-19. So it hasn't got the attention that it rightly deserves in the media. And it looks like it's not getting the attention that it deserves in terms of um, international aid and development. Um, So I I don't know about you guys, but while I sort of knew vaguely that there was a war going on in Yemen, I didn't really understand sort of why and what was going on. So did a bit of background research and I can share that with you guys if you want me to. Yeah, 100%. I I need to know more. (laughs) Well, from what I can tell, like, Effectively, the war has its genesis in 2011 and in the Arab Spring that we saw pop up all around the Middle East. And just like many other countries in the region at the time, Yemen was ruled by an authoritarian president. There was a popular uprising by the people, and eventually he was forced to step down. The only problem is, is that his replacement was his deputy, and he turned out to be equally as bad. So he failed to unite the country, deal with corruption, food insecurity, all of the things that were plaguing Yemen at the time. And so a group of rebels, known as the Houthis, took advantage of that weakness and they mounted effectively a military campaign to overthrow the government. And they were pretty successful. By 2014, so three years later, the Houthis had captured the capital of Sana'a. And by 2015, it actually looked like they were going to control the whole country. But... Of course, it didn't end there, and here's where it all gets really messy. So the Houthis are part of the Shia stream of Islam and effectively receive substantial backing from Iran. So think arms, think money, Iran's there, they're supporting the Houthis all the way. So 
the rise of the Houthis and effectively Iran in Yemen was actually seen as really threatening to countries like Saudi Arabia, who subscribe to Sunni Islam, the opposite to Iran, and the Houthis, who subscribe to Shia Islam. So in response, Saudi Arabia and eight other countries began an air campaign aimed at defeating the Houthis. And that was sort of joined in by the US and the UK and France. They supported Saudi Arabia. And part of the reason why they did that is they thought the war would be over in a few weeks. But three years later, in 2018, there was a stalemate. And in order to break that, and this is where the famine comes in, Saudi Arabia blockaded Yemen's key shipping port. And that's really significant because Yemen is largely landlocked. It can't produce a lot of its own food. So they actually import about 75% of all the food they eat in the country. And so suddenly all of that food was cut off. So add to that then an economic crisis, the destruction of farming area and all the things that happen in a war. And food is pretty much very scarce and very unaffordable for the people that can actually find it. So now we've reached a situation where 80% of the population, so about 24 million people, need urgent humanitarian assistance and protection, and roughly 2 million children are acutely malnourished, which to me is like mind-boggling. 24 million people is pretty much the population of Australia. Yeah, that's so many people, and I think it's it's so interesting because I feel there's been so many situations where this year it's like humanitarian aid has been needed in so many different ways. I don't know if it's just as I get older, I'm more acutely aware of what's going on around me or more conflict is happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, probably a bit of both. I think also, like, it, as you said, Jen, like, the media doesn't show everything. I mean, I listened to a podcast the other day about um, growing poverty numbers in America and I was, I think I actually cried a bit while I listened to it. I was hungover. It was a whole thing. But, like, then you listen to things about Yemen and there's such a massive difference between the two, but we just don't have as much awareness of it unless we actively seek it out as well. And you're touching on how like religion plays like such a big role in all of that conflict and that seemingly a theme around the world, which kind of also foreshadows season three. And it would be rude not to <laughs> give it a bit of a plug. Self plug, self plug. Go ahead. All the way. Got to do it. <laughs> yeah. So season three is coming out in a two weeks time and our in-depth series is going to be focusing on religion and its intersection with politics in uh, a few different capacities and contexts so stay in tune for that one um <laughs> yeah what else is is that yeah well I, I thought I'd just give a brief update on the situation now so like we yeah, were saying like it feels like it's not really being brought to our attention like we don't really know about it so the UN feeds pretty much on a monthly basis 12 million Yemenis, which is a heck of a lot of people to be feeding every month. And they need about 3.4 billion US dollars a year to do that. But last month, the UN warned that it had received only about 45% of that amount for 2020, because everyone's focusing on their own nations and on coronavirus. So with a month left of the year, there's a shortfall of roughly $2 billion dollars. And as a result, millions of people could starve because of that. So that's why we're starting to hear a little bit more about it now as the UN, the World Food Programme, really plead for people's money and for people's attention. So that's why I thought I'd mention it today. Yeah, Sasha, do you want to go ahead with your story? Yes, oh, I'd love to. Um, I don't have as much of a noble reason for sharing mine as, as Josh does. Um, mine was quite simply, and I mean, we've spoken about it on the podcast before. Um, it was Kevin Rudd's. 
media petition for a commission into the Murdoch media dynasty in Australia. Oh, yes. How could we forget? How could we forget? <laughs> um, the, the height of Australian media. Oh, I know. Um, I think, I mean, it was one of the cooler things to happen this year, I think. But um, as a media student, I thought it was such a cool thing to see someone sort of take an official swing at the Murdoch media. I think there's a lot of discussion about them, but obviously because of how much power they have in such high up places, I, I imagine it would be quite difficult for anyone in a position of power to start actively working against them. And to see the side of that, even though we don't know what the outcome will be, to have sort of uh, an initial movement against them was really interesting. And I'm really excited to see where it goes to from here. It was like 500,000 people signed it and it's like the biggest signature base they've had in so long for any Australian petition in history. So it's crazy. And it just shows like how much of like this story has struck the Australian people. Like Mm. they're noticing, they're being critical. That's part of why I thought was so cool is that I think, especially when you study sort of media theory, there are questions of like um, whether the audience just receives information or whether they analyse it. And then we have the biggest ever response to a petition. You realise that everyone is actually quite aware of how bad this is and wants to see change, which was really awesome to see. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was so cool. So encouraging to see that people are actually like engaging with these sorts of issues and concerned about it. And I mean, rightfully so. I've got family that's based in um, Queensland and they read their newspapers because they're a little bit older and that's how they get their news. And pretty much all the newspapers in their region are owned by Murdoch and News Corp. And the constant negative stream of news that comes in regarding maybe the virus, regarding politics, regarding all the different sorts of issues Uh, that are occurring on a day-to-day basis really does frame their political outlook. And so when I talk to them on the phone, it feels like they are getting completely different news to what I'm getting. We both Mm. hear about the same issues, but just from different outlets. And as a result, um, we approach it in completely different ways. And we've seen that in the US as well, the way that the media can be used to both divide and also unite society. So I think it is a really important issue for us to focus on as a country and make sure that hopefully we don't end up in the hyper-partisan wars that have engulfed places like the US. I mean, did you guys see what um, the difference between the Adelaide and the Victorian handling of coronavirus within Mm. the Murdoch media? Because what I saw was that um, when it came to Dan Andrews, they were slamming him, they were furious. But with Adelaide, there was a lot more respect to the decisions that were being made. Yes. Yeah, you can see it everywhere. Yeah, I I saw a couple of um, little images on Facebook that were comparing the front pages from both the SA papers and the Vic papers at the time of these announcements. And they were framed so differently. And that's where you really do start to question about, you know, the particular biases within the Murdoch empire. And I mean, Murdoch's own son has, has left News Corp precisely because he says this corporation and this news organisation that now spans three of the world's biggest democracies is wielding influence in a really negative way. Yeah, I was going to say, like, COVID's, like, the easiest example, but you can even look at how around the world that the Great Barrier Reef is on massive decline and Mm. research found that it was because of climate change and it was undeniable, but it wasn't reported on once by any Murdoch outlet at all, which I thought was astounding, like something that's happening Mm. on our shores. 
Yeah, well, it was something really interesting that you brought up with Kevin Rudd, with the connection between our media and any climate change effort. Yeah, I, I think it ultimately comes down to the fact that we live in a democracy and one of the um, great values of democracy is freedom of expression. We have a right to say what we want to say and to put views out there, subject to, of course, um, some limits. But ultimately, I think Rupert Murdoch has the right to publish what he wants to publish, but he shouldn't be controlling 70% of our newspapers. He shouldn't be controlling the airwaves and therefore controlling public opinion and ultimately our politics and our policies. Yeah. And I think that's the key issue here. Yeah, that's all so crazy. Um, thanks so much for both of you sharing those stories. Really interesting. I want to now focus on a topic that we haven't focused on in the wrap-up, but it's been a massive part of 2020 and gained a lot of momentum this year, and that's cancel culture. So just a bit of a definition around it. Cancel culture or call-out culture is a modern form of ostracism where someone is thrust out of their social or professional circles, either on social media, in the real world, or both. And therefore, they are considered to be cancelled. And Dictionary.com defines it as withdrawing support for cancelling public figures and companies after they've done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. So the notion of cancel culture is actually a variant on the term call-out culture and constitutes a form of boycotting of an individual, usually a celebrity or public figure. And it's usually the people who are doing the cancelling is usually like influencers and like people gaining momentum online. So being cancelled is actually hounding someone out of their job or actually can see them get fired online um, because of something they've said and done. Yet it's not actually exclusive to just racist happenings or um, but it's become a real point of discussion. And the more you look into it, the more you realise just how much of a phenomenon this is. Mm. I think you can definitely see um, it as like a policing of moral boundaries um, in this context and almost is exclusive to progressive moral boundaries as well. Yes. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. It seems to be something that generally tends to happen. It's a generalisation, but more on left-wing progressive side of politics. But do you think it's positive? Because, I mean, I, I can see virtues in it, but then we've also had people like Obama that have said, well, actually, this is really negative. Stop doing it. I think that's a very fair point. And actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because for celebrities, like they kind of are able to withstand the backlash relatively easily because they have such strong bases. But then when it spreads into non-celebrity behaviour, it becomes a bit of an interesting dynamic because it actually affects the least powerful the most mm. because you're like a smaller power. Like you don't have as much power to then regain that support as you were if you were like a bigger name in the yeah. media. Like, you know, Alan still has her show. Jimmy Fallon's still there. Like, Yeah, no, it, it there's a massive inconsistency to it. Um, I was about to say, I think Alan actually got cancelled twice this year and she's still still kicking. You know, Roman Polanski is getting awards, making money. I have quite mixed feelings about cancel culture. I think the grassroots and democratising nature of it is honestly quite cool. I think it's really impressive that people are now able to voice quite clearly what they will and won't abide. But it is surprising when people can be quote-unquote cancelled and rebound quite quickly and it doesn't have 
big financial issues for some, but then others can lose their source of income, they can lose their, their livelihood and aren't necessarily in a position to gain that back. I completely agree with you both. On one hand, part of me is excited to see people taking a stand and saying, well, actually, no, here are certain behaviours and morals and ideas and all the rest that actually we're not comfortable with as a society. And if you're going to behave in a certain way or degrade people in a certain way, then we're not going to support you. We're not going to support your particular career or whatever. And I, and I think that in and of itself as an idea has positive origins. I think the problem becomes when the full media thing swings into action and people get targeted and within 24 hours there's posts everywhere on social media, there's negative articles and people's lives, as you were saying, really get destroyed so quickly without there being any actual factual inquiry into whether or not the allegations are true. And I suppose this is my law school training coming out here, but yeah. I think ultimately real justice even though it can be slow and it can be painful, ultimately involves hearing every side to the story, making sure that everyone has their voice heard and making sure that someone is independently assessing all of the facts. That I know is a very idealistic view of the law and the way that it works, but all things going well, I think that is ultimately the best way to deal with some of these particular issues. But I also recognize that speaking up, having a voice, publicizing things that are going wrong is also important too. So it's just walking that fine tightrope, if you like. All right. So with that, we'll wrap up. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this Christmas special recap of global events from 2020. Thank you to our listeners. You're the ones that keep us going year on year and we appreciate all your support. Global Questions will be taking a well-deserved two-week break before we get stuck into season three early Jan. I would like to give special shout outs to the people behind the podcast. So Joshua Kay, our audio producer on this app today, Sasha Nielsen, our marketing officer, Hugo McFarlane, our outreach officer, and Emma Fabricate, our Sydney director and co-host, and special mention to Kelly Fan, marketing director of YDS, Young Diplomat Society, who really helped this last season get off the ground. And also could not forget the wider YDS team and everyone in it. Their support is always very necessary and welcomed and also keeps us going. So with all that, thank you so much for listening and supporting us. And we will see you all in the new year with the next season. Thank you all. I'll see you then. Merry Christmas, Merry guys. Merry Christmas. Bye.